0: Please take your Bibles and we're going to go to 2 Corinthians, the last chapter, chapter 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Oh yes. You saw in the bulletin, next week we'll do a Christmas message. I'm going to do something in 1 John and then I'll do Psalm 16 and then We'll figure out what we're gonna, what we're gonna do in January. So, but eventually we'll start in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. That's kind of my goal. Today, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, we'll finish up this letter. Paul's. It's actually the fourth letter that he wrote to Corinth. Two of them we have, two of them we don't have. Chapter 13. Oh, I'm sorry, that black Bible in the chair in front of you. Uh, go towards the back, page 146. 146 in that black Bible, Sorry. Second Corinthians chapter 13. Let me read and then we'll do our study. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every word is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I said this before when present the second time. And now absent, I say, to those who have sinned in the past and, and to all the rest as well, and if I come again, I will not spare. Since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me, Christ is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For indeed, he was crucified out of weakness, yet he lives out of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we shall live with him because of the power of God toward you. Try yourselves if you are in the faith. Approve yourselves. Or do you not know this about yourselves? that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are unapproved. But I hope that you will know that we ourselves are not unapproved. But we pray to God that you do no wrong, not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is good, even though we should appear unapproved. For we do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. And this we pray for your completion. For this reason I'm writing these things while absent, nor that when present I may not act severely according to the authority which the Lord has given to me for edification and not unto destruction. Verse 11. Finally, brethren, rejoice. Let yourselves be made complete. Let yourselves be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. When it comes to parenting, Reese Witherspoon believes in full transparency. She was on an interview for ABC News. and She said this. She mentions that she prefers to tell her kids the truth, no matter how harsh it might be. Guess what, kids? You're going to be disappointed and uncomfortable once in a while, she said. She relates the story. Quote, I remember Ava crying in bed in third grade. She was on JV basketball, and she was the only kid on the team who didn't score. I said, Aves, maybe you're bad at basketball. (laughs) She thought that was mean. I said, mean or true? Because guess what? Your mom's bad at basketball too. Harsh. Telling the truth. Being severe, that's not being gentle. That's not being loving. That's not being kind. Or is it? What if the most loving thing to do is to be tough? What if the kindest thing to do is to be harsh? What if the gentlest thing to do is to be severe? What if good things come from painful things? What if we need a good kick in the pants so that way we don't get our leg chopped off? Or as the song goes, What if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? That's from Laura Story's song called Blessings. See, for us in our American culture, we don't like that. So the message that you will hear is going to be anti-American, so to speak. Or maybe I should say anti-American culture. Because, yeah, I don't know. Harsh and gentle. Severe and gentle, those are opposites, right? Not so here. Paul is going to be severe. And in his severity, he's actually going to be gentle. So that way he won't really be severe. The paradox Boasting in our weakness, boasting in the Lord, right? That's the paradox that we've been looking at over the past... uh, How many messages have we done? Like 20? Something like that. So today we're going to look at this paradox. Severe, gentle. Severe, gentle. Instead of coming severely, Paul would write severely so that he could come to edify and, and build up instead of having to destroy. Or I'll put it in a different way. Severe, gentle. Instead of being gentle in his words, Paul was severe to the Corinthians so that when he would come, he could be gentle. In the midst of being severe, Paul was actually being gentle. That's the paradox. Which is the paradox of the gospel, right? Of course, we have to bring it back to the gospel. Our relationship of love and communication with God came at the expense of the death of his son. The kindest thing for God to do was to bring severity upon Jesus. As you read, but the Lord crushed him severely. And Jesus has been severely crushed and that has happened forever. He will forever be like this. He will forever be the God-man. Forever we will see the severity, the harshness, the toughness of God. Because when you would look on Jesus, you would see that that should be me. I should have been dealt with in that way. You should have dealt severely with me. You should have been harsh with me. And yet you were harsh with your son so that way you can... Be gentle with me. You see the paradox? God showed his glorious kindness by the glorious severity in the cross. Jesus suffering and dying for us. God's grace or power is seen most clearly not in the best of times, but in what seems to be the most severe times, the most painful times in your life, the harsh times. And yet God's not being harsh with you. You want God to be harsh with you? He'll send you to hell. That's being harsh. You want God to be severe with you? He'll send you to hell. That's being severe. But he's not. And yet, as we go through these painful times and lives, we realize that that severity is where God's blessing and grace is found. And Paul's desire... He wanted to bring this contention with the Corinthian church to an ultimate end, so he threatened to use severity, but yet he appealed to them to judge themselves, so that way he can avoid severely confronting them. But it wasn't to further his own agenda. No. Paul's main concern was the healing of their relationship and for their wholeness in Christ. That's what every pastor wants for God's church, for God's people. In short, he preached the gospel to them again. He was ready to preach it with his conduct by confronting them. You're going to see how Paul he asserts the authority which is given to him from the weak, crucified, risen Lord, the Lord who's the power of God displayed in weakness. So let's walk through the text. First, we have the threat of a severe presence. Look at verse 1 and 2. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Okay, what were the first two? The first was the founding visit. The second was that painful visit. Well, it didn't go very well, remember that? And now it's going to be the third time. But now, it's a legal issue. It's going to be a church discipline visit. Or it could be. Which is why he cites, quotes Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. Every fact or word should be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Okay, well, who are the witnesses? What what does he mean by this? There's different views. It could be him and the associates, it could be himself, the Corinthians, and Christ. I tend to think he means the three visits. So whichever view you might take, this matter needed to be resolved. Paul's authority as their apostle, to embrace them as their apostle, to embrace him as their pastor. That was the issue at stake. I notice every fact is actually the Greek word "hrema," which means word. What was said, and now what he says in advance of his final visit. That he was a legit apostle rested on the spoken word, the gospel. Spoken out of his weakness in faith. That's what he means. And it's this word that they were disobeying by not embracing Paul as a true apostle. Their true apostle. This was the heart of the conflict. This was the issue. This was the problem. And notice what he says in verse 2. I said this previously when I was present the second time. That second painful visit mm, didn't go really well. He says it here again. If I have to come the third time, I will not spare. This is pretty strong language. Paul's not messing around. Severity would come with it. He would come with a rod upon his children, and the entire church was guilty. Remember, he's talking to the entire church, not just to the opposition. Uh, well, what was he going to do? He doesn't say, and we don't know. Uh, was he going to tell this, these duh, 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 super apostles, was he going to tell them to leave? Was he going to kick them out? I don't know. Was he going to tell the church to come together or disband the church? We don't know. Now, from later references, it seems like Corinth did repent. But we just don't know what Paul would have done if they did not. But in any event, we see here, is Paul strongly asserted his authority as their pastor. And since sufficient warning was given, punishment would come. And he would have to be harsh in the use of his given authority. That's where we come up with that point. The threat of his severe coming. Well, why would he have to threat this? Why this threat? Look at verse 3. Since you're seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me, they sought proof. There's going to be a play on words here, so keep that in mind, that word proof, okay? They believe he lacked it. They believe Christ didn't speak in him, he was weak. He was a loser. He was a nobody. He didn't wazzle and dazzle people. Christ had not spoken in him because of his weakness, his feebleness. Thus, he had no authority. He had no power. Well, notice what he does. At this point, he brings up the reality of a weak presence. Look at what he says in the next part of verse 3. Christ who speaks to me, Christ who's not weak toward you, but mighty in you. Christ was not weak toward them, Christ was mighty in them. Well, well, the question is, how? How was Christ not weak toward them, but powerful? In Paul. Christ's power was manifested in Paul's weakness. See, Corinth thought like the world, believing weakness should be excluded or removed by power. But for Paul, power is present and effective only within weakness. That's so anti-world. That's so anti-American culture, too. If you have a weakness, what are you supposed to do with it? Get rid of it, right? You don't keep your weaknesses in your business. You don't keep your weaknesses there in your job. You don't keep those weaknesses. You want to get rid of those weaknesses, make them in the strengths, right? Of course. Everybody knows that. Google it, right? I mean, come on. But see, this, power is present and effective only within weakness. That is the message of the gospel. Christ humbled himself by taking on flesh, was obedient to death on a cross. That's power. And that's the harsh, severe, painful, weak reality of our salvation. Look at what he says from verse 4. For indeed, he was crucified out of weakness. The one who exercised power among them was killed on a cross. So he was crucified, notice, out of weakness. That's what it literally says from the Greek. Meaning that weakness was inherent in Christ. It belonged to Jesus. The same weakness that belongs to humans. We're weak, aren't we? We're feeble, aren't we? That same weakness belonged to Jesus. That same weakness belonged to Christ. And it was out of or from that weakness He died. He was crucified. But into this weakness Christ has entered and out of weakness Christ was crucified and yet He lives out of the power of God. Look at what he says in the next part. Yet He lives out of the power of God. Christ or excuse me, God exercises saving power in Christ the God-man, so as weakness was inherent in him, so God's power was inherent in him. So here's the crux of the issue. The Corinthians believe that where power existed, weakness should not be present. We want to gain power and rid ourselves of our weaknesses, Right? We We just said that just a few moments ago. To make strengths out of our weaknesses, even to destroy our weaknesses. We don't want to admit those weaknesses. But the gospel teaches the opposite. God's power is present and operative only within weakness, says one writer. God's power overcomes our weaknesses without removing our weaknesses. Well, how do we know? Jesus still has a nail prince in his hands and he's still human. He still shows his weakness. He still shows the severity of God. He will always be God-man. Think about, think about that statement. Jesus still has a nail prince and still is human. He will forever be the embodiment of weakness. He will forever be the embodiment of the harshness of God. He will forever be the example or display of God's severity. Forever. And I understand. He has a glorified body. I understand that. But it's still a body. He's still human. It's a glorified humanity. He will always be God-man. Think about that. Forever we will worship the one who will forever be displayed as weakness, as severity, as the harshness of God so that we can get kindness, so that we can get love, so that we can be shown grace. You understand that? Does that make sense to you? Now think about this. Only in affliction does comfort and mercy spring into action, so that we may know God's saving comfort. Well, why does God do this? Why does God not remove weaknesses to save us from our addiction to and worship of power? We have an affection. A desire for power. We want that. We desire, we crave power. We crave it as humans. That's why God does not remove the weaknesses. That's why He doesn't do that. That's why power is effective only within weakness. Because that's where God's grace, that's where God's power comes into play. And since God's saving power is gloriously seen in the death of Christ at the cross, God brings to nothing human affection for power. In other words, God saves us from ourselves. Notice, he says this next part in verse 4. For we are also weak in Him, yet we shall live with Him because of the power of God toward you. We're weak in him. Just like Jesus, Paul's weaknesses remained. So he participated in Christ in that he shared in Christ's weaknesses, but he he would also live with Christ. Christ's power was inherent in Christ, but not in Paul. So the need was to participate, was to share things in Christ because all things are operative in Christ. And notice he says, toward you. The end of verse four, toward you church God's power is directed toward the Corinthians too thus Paul's salvation and Corn's salvation they coincide together they're bound together I'll put it a different way this is kind of weird Paul could not be saved without the church and they could not be saved without their apostle Mm -hmm. it goes together because they boast in one another They boasted in one another of the work that God had done in them. Paul's whole life was a vivid display of the gospel. That's why every true pastor who loves God's church is a vivid display of the very gospel he preaches and the gospel that they believe. I am a visible sermon to you all the accusations all the struggles all my weaknesses everything I'm a living display of the gospel I'm the embodiment of the gospel and I would even go as far as to say this not just me but my family as well we have been the embodiment of the gospel to you as a church this is what we have been for 12 years we've been this to you because every true pastor is this and the salvation that we have as a church, salvation that we have together, we're bound together. At least of what it should be. And now notice what he does. He changes things. It's like he, he turned the tables on them. The severe, gentle, challenge, self-approval. Look at verse 5. That's why things change. try, yourselves, if you're in the faith. Approve yourselves. You see he says? He's saying to them, Christ has spoken to me. I'm your true apostle. I'm your true pastor. The proof is here. Now you as a church, are, are, are you approved? And notice he says, try to see if you're in the faith. When he says the faith, he's talking about the content of faith or the faith that is believed. So are are you approved? The faith is born from the gospel by the Spirit's work in the heart. It arises from God's power, not from man. And then look at what he does. Uh, He says, examine yourselves there in numeric standard. It actually means prove yourselves. It's the same root as the word that's used there in verse, what was it, three, where they say you're seeking for proof. Proof. Same root word. Ducky Moss." So they're seeking for his approval. And if he turns the tables on them, and says, No, what about your approval? You guys are still wanting to judge me. Have you thought about judging yourselves? says Paul. Prove yourselves. Notice the next part of verse 5. Or do you not know? Recognize. This about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Now, he expected they would pass the test. Not because they're gazing at their navel. No, no, no. But individually and corporately, by whether or not they knew Jesus was in and among them. See, being in the faith equals Christ in and among them the effect of God's work in them. What's the next question? Well, how do we know if God's work was in them? How do we know if God's work in them had cause and effect? Power within weakness. Righteousness within sin. Life within death. Comfort within suffering. It means we surrender. We surrender our dreams of earthly power and glory. We embrace the harsh severity, suffering, painfulness of God instead of power. Here's another thing that blows our minds. Think about this. Conforming to Jesus is suffered, it's not achieved by discipline or devotion. Discipline and devotion helps us by reminding us, in the midst of our suffering, weakness and feebleness of our frailty, immorality, mortality. Excuse me, and of our desperate need for Christ, God, and the Spirit. In other words, I'll put it like this: Just because you read your Bible and pray, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Conforming to Christ is suffered. It's when you suffer. When you face pain, when you face difficulty, when you face trial, that's when that word, that's when you start praying, that's when you start remembering the promises of God. That's when you remember that God is faithful. That's when you remember God's love for you in Christ. Nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? It's when you're suffering, it's when life is horrible. It's when life is painful. It's when someone severely attacks you and they are harsh as Paul was here with the Corinthians. Confirming faith lies within the reality of faith. He called them to a fresh act of trusting in the gospel. Grasp once again power and weakness, Corinthians. Corinthians which is a fresh embrace of God's grace, which is Christ, because by His wounds we are healed. And to fail, notice what he says, unless indeed you have failed the test, really is you, have, you are unapproved, which means you disbelieve the gospel. See, that's why it's so vital for you here if you're not a Christian. You need to believe in the gospel. You must repent and put your trust in Christ. Stop messing around. Get serious with God. He's calling you to respond. Why won't you respond? And then look at what he says here in verse 6. But I trust. Actually, he's saying, but I, uh, excuse me, but I hope that you will know That we ourselves are not unapproved. Now, from God's perspective, God's work in Christ was sure and confirmed. But from the Corinthians' perspective, there was a little bit of doubt there. They're kind of acting weird. That's because Paul did not have confidence in them. His confidence was always in Christ because it's not about you, it's about the gospel. It's always about the gospel. But no, that's why Paul says, I hope, though you know, we're not unapproved. In other words, we're for real. In other words, we are in the faith, guys. Christ has spoken in us, guys. I have the authority of an apostle of Christ. Notice how he asserts his authority. We are approved. You're seeking the proof, Corinthians. I'm the real deal. Paul was for real. We're not unapproved. We are approved. And that's why he turns the tables. But what about you guys? Because think about it. I mean, if if Paul was unapproved, he was the one who spoke the gospel to them. If he's unapproved, then guess what? They're unapproved. Because they're the ones that believe the gospel that he actually preached to them. See? He's like, come on, guys, you're not making any sense. This isn't making any sense. If I'm a charlatan, if I'm out to get you and exploit you, then you're charlatans. Because you believe the very gospel that I preached. In other words, if they stood the test and were proved, then Christ dwelt in them, and thus they receive this gospel given by Paul. They embraced him as their pastor. And look at what he does, verse seven. But we pray to God that you do no wrong. He petitions for them. He prayed they would not do any evil. In other words, look, guys, I'm not against you, I'm for you. Church, I've never been against you. Look at Paul. Paul believed the best, he hoped the best, he endured their foolishness. What a guy! What a pal. What, a, what an apostle. I mean, what a challenge for us that we would believe the best about each other, hope for the best for each other, and endure each other's, dare I say, stupidity. Do we do this as a church? This was Paul's attitude with Corinth. And they were horrible. They treated him like Trash. He wasn't concerned about them being devoted to him. He was concerned about the conduct of their lives. Not to do evil. He wanted them to have complete obedience, devotion. He wanted to betroth them to Christ. Remember uh, chapter 10? You guys already know this? Corinthians. Grafts the gospel once again. Again. And, and, and look, look, at, look at what he says, the next part here in verse seven. Not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what's right or what's good, even though we should appear unapproved. See, he's saying this is my mission, simplicity to Christ, your devotion to Christ. Yet notice, he's willing to make an exchange. He'd be happy to trade places with them. He'd rather that they do good so they, he, excuse me, he might be the one who appears to be unapproved. What's he doing? What's he saying? If they would mean he'd win the Corinthians for Christ and the gospel, then he's ready to lose in this contention. He was ready to be made the sinner so they can be righteous. That's what he's ready to do. Again, Paul was the living display of the gospel. This should be the attitude and mission of every true, godly, Christ-fearing pastor. This should be my attitude towards you. And look at what he says. Here's the explanation in verse 8. For we do nothing against the truth but for the truth. I am a servant of the gospel of Christ. That's the truth. The truth is the gospel. He did not act in his own interest but on behalf of the gospel because it's not about you. It's never been about you. Church, it's been about the gospel. The gospel judges us all. Me, you, all of us. Paul understood that. Which is why he says there in verse 9, that last part, excuse me, there in verse 9, the first part, for we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. So he prayed for the right conduct because that's, that's his mission. And then he says, we rejoice when we're weak and you're strong. This is the mission of every pastor. Christ's power that operated in Paul and his weaknesses was for their benefit. Look, if I end up looking like a moron, so let it be. If it's going to benefit you guys, fine. That's his attitude. Christ's power that operates in me and all my weaknesses is for you, Cottonwood Bible Church. My very life is a display of the gospel to you and all my weaknesses and all the attacks against my weaknesses and everything. I'm the vivid display of the gospel to you. And look at how he completes off this prayer. And this is what I pray for at the end of verse nine. Your completion. Paul's prayer was for them. His prayer was for their restoration. It's actually how you can translate the word or Bringing them back. Back to what? Back to the gospel. Why? Because remember, the strife, the immorality, the unruliness, the sensuality, he's interceding for them because he wants their wholeness. He wants their well-being. He wants to benefit them. It's not about his own agenda. Which is why he gave this severe letter Look at verse 10. For this reason, I'm writing these things while absent. In order that when I'm present, literally, he says, I may not act severely. He wanted to avoid exercising the authority, he says, according to the authority which the Lord has given to me. To avoid using this, which he threatened earlier at his next coming. The authority of the Lord has given to me unto edification and not for destruction. Listen, the authority God gives to pastors is for the edification of the church, not for their destruction, realizing that the latter may become necessary in order to do the former. Why? Because in order for there to be life, there must be death. How do I know that? The gospel. See? In order for there to be life, Jesus had to die. Sometimes... As the death of Jesus brings life and sins bring, sin brings righteousness, it may be necessary to deal with the opposition head on and risk destroying the church in order to bring about true elevation of the church. That's what he's saying. That's why he was severe. Now what does he do? Now he starts challenging them in a severe, gentle way. His severe, gentle challenges Look at verse 11. Finally, brethren, given the strife and the turmoil in the church, it makes sense why Paul has all these commands. Rejoice. Have joy. When faith in Christ is true and real, joy is ever-present. And notice, his joy was bound up in their joy, and their joy was bound up in his joy. Remember chapter 1? Into chapter 2. Lift your eyes up away from this present contention between you guys. Between this going this way and this way. See the great goodness and grace of God given to you in Christ for crying out loud, stop fighting. And then notice what he says Rejoice, be made complete. It's a passive verb, which is why I translated it for you. Let yourselves be made complete. The same word he uses from verse 9, what he prays for your restoration. Let yourselves be restored. Let yourselves be made complete. Receive God's work of making you whole. And he does that by you receiving my teaching, my apostleship, he says. And not just corporately, but individuals, you, Embrace me, he says, as your apostle. Do you want to be made whole and complete? One way is for you to listen to your pastor. I'm serious. Having a humble, receiving response. Notice what he says as well. Be comforted. Again, a passive verb. Let yourselves be comforted. For them to rejoice and be made whole as a church, they should allow themselves to be comforted in the gospel. Let it comfort you again. Notice the next one he says. Be like-minded, intent on the same thing, focus on the same matter. Go beyond your differences. Instead of focusing on the things that divide us, find unity above and beyond. We find it in the gospel, don't we? Set aside your upward strivings, factions, your kingdom, your vanity, your selfish ambition, he's saying. Seek out others and their best. For Corinth, they unify in Jesus if they unify in their apostle. Listen, a church will not find satisfaction, will not grow, will not will lack comfort and joy will not be made whole and will not be like-minded if members are divided against their pastor or their leader. It will not happen. I guarantee. That's what Paul's saying. Notice he says as well, live in peace. Overcome all this disorderliness, this chaos, the warring community, let it cease. This thing has ensued. Let things go. Be in Peace. And then notice what he says here, at the end of verse, verse 11. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. If they did this, the God of love and peace will be with them. They would receive a fresh experience of the reality of the gospel at work in their lives. In Christ, God has shown his love. In Christ, God has shown his peace. And, and notice this, it'll be with you. Once again, he's going after this whole understanding that Corinth had about some endowment with power. They thought it was about empower, some magical thing. They want to push aside their weaknesses. No. Because remember, salvation is a relationship of communication with the living God in Christ so we experience God's power in our weakness, righteousness in our sin. Spiritual riches in our poverty, it all rests in Christ. Or I'll put it another way, in a different screen. To experience fresh God's love and peace, these are qualities of God's character, is to admit failures, weaknesses, and sufferings, even to embrace them, and embrace the gospel in those things. We embrace God himself who's love, we embrace God himself who is our peace, embrace Jesus he's reminding them to embrace Christ fresh again you've forgotten Corinthians you've forgotten oh church the truth of the gospel and then he says greet one another with a holy kiss so I expect you to kiss me Ward later on (laughs) bond of love and affection for each other it was an expression of honor but you know, it serves something else though. And then, and then verse 13, all the saints greet you. It was a reminder. Remember Corinth. They were snooty-tooty. They were high up in Corinth, which had lots of bling-bling They had lots of money. They thought they were the end-all be-all. It reminded them of something. They were not the only Christians in the world. Our brethren that live throughout the world, it's a community that we have with others. When they would read this letter at the worship service, it would remind them we're one body. One body in the gospel, which is why he ends his letter like this, verse 14, excuse me. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Notice these aren't actions. It's to know, to experience, be with you again no power no some magical potion with you experienced to know this grace is seen in jesus christ a love that comes from god the father and the spirit conveys an intimate relationship with god and with each other the covenant community he wanted them to know and 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 experience fresh this gospel truth the grace in Christ God's love the fellowship of the spirit it's a reminder of the gospel again salvation is about God communicating in a love relationship with humanity where we have communion with him the giver through the severity done to our Lord through the harshness and notice this communion with all three persons of the Trinity The God who saves is found in Christ and present in the Spirit because in weakness we are strong. In severity there's gentleness. What if the most loving thing to do is to be tough? What if the kindest thing to do is to be harsh? What if the gentlest thing to do is to be severe? What if good things come from painful things? Do not underestimate how God works. I told you about earlier in the message, the beginning of the message, Laura Story's song, Blessings. In closing, I'll read you the rest of the lyrics. We pray for blessings. We pray for peace. Comfort for family. Protection while we sleep. We pray for healing. For prosperity. We pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering. All the while, you hear each spoken need. Yet love is way too much to give us lesser things. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? We pray for wisdom, your voice to hear. We cry in anger when we cannot feel you near. We doubt your goodness. We doubt your love, as if every promise from your word is not enough. All the while, you hear each desperate plea and long that we'd have faith to believe. When friends betray us, when darkness seems to win, we know that pain reminds this heart that this is not our home. What if my greatest disappointments or the aching of this life is the revealing of a greater thirst this world can't satisfy? What if trials of this life the rain, the storms, the hardest nights, the harshest nights are your mercies in disguise. Father, we admit and we confess to you that we don't want to face severe, harsh, hard, tough, painful suffering, getting kicked in the pants type things. we've become so acclimated to not having any of that. And yet the reality even of our Palestinian brethren who live there in the Gaza Strip, who live there in the West Bank, they know that reality. They face it every day. Some of us here know, and knows, Neil knows, Karen right now, she knows, Nancy has been experiencing that, and even Judy. Some of us know the severity that's there, the pain that's there and yet you guide us not in a law direction type way but in a fellowship with you communion with you a relationship with you we have that father with you through the Lord Jesus oh help us as a church to embrace one another to love as you love us in such severity. Not as an excuse to be harsh with each other. It's a way for us to minister to one another even in the midst of our weaknesses. Take this time, if you would, and let your mind dwell on these things. Ponder from, ponder in the Word. Ponder what we've seen in the Word. And after a few moments, we'll, we'll worship in our giving, worship singing two more songs, prayer. But let this be a time, just you and the Lord, and, and let this truth sink, sink deep into your soul. Just a few moments. That's all.